Hello, and welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, Episode 8, This Prince Ain't for Walkin'. After last week's descent into the intricacies of parliamentary democracy and the Byzantine rules and counter-rules that allowed for the double shuffle, it occurs to me that now would be a good time to pause and review where we are exactly. As fascinating as parliamentary tactics can be, we don't want to get lost in the details. Our story is slowly threading its way to the idea of British-American Union, even if this isn't always obvious. We are now at the end of the 1850s and on the cusp of a series of developments which will lead us into Canadian Confederation. The general details are clear. When we left last day, the Liberal Conservative Coalition had come back to power, this time now with Georges Etienne Cartier as the Prime Minister. George Brown had failed in his bid to resurrect the old Reform Coalition. It might have been unfair, and yes, it's quite possible that Governor Head had shown a bit of favoritism in being more lenient to Cartier and MacDonald than he was to Brown, but there we have it. That, though, is only part of the story. There are larger trends to spot under the surface of events, so let's review what I see as the three overarching trends so far. First, as should be very clear, the Canadian political system suffered from a bad case of unstable-itis. The fact that three governments had held power in only a matter of weeks in the summer of 1858 is surely one good indication of this. It was difficult for any particular political faction to gain a majority in the Assembly, at least one that was seen as legitimate across the United, or so-called United, province. At the end of the 1840s, Canadians had one responsible government for themselves. Politics no longer revolved around British-appointed governors and factions that were loyal to them or reformers who the governors only reluctantly worked with. This was truly, in, in most domestic matters, a parliamentary democracy and a responsible government. Parliament decided. The trick was that Parliament often couldn't decide. The idea that the best government should govern with a majority in both sections remained theoretically popular, but also crucially unworkable. This was the old double majority idea. Certainly when a government passed a bill which affected one section, many expected that a majority of members from that section ought to have supported the bill. This expectation fueled Upper Canadian anger in the 1850s. There was for sure no small amount of prejudice and anti-Catholicism in Protestant Upper Canada's reaction to, you know, something like the separate schools issue. But there was also popular democratic anger too, at how the will of the majority could be thwarted. A liberal conservative government built around a lower Canadian majority seemed to be foisting its will on an unwilling Upper Canada. Despite what Lower Canadians said about him, George Brown wasn't just a bigoted anti-Catholic. He also spoke for democratic principles. And to Brown and his supporters, the sectional equality of the eastern and western sections of the province of Canada, the basic constitutional makeup of the province that gave each equal numbers in the assembly, despite the growth of the western section, was an open and festering sore. The fact was, though, that no party could win a double majority. Certainly, Brown could not win over enough lower Canadians to support his branch of reform. His biggest success had been the attempted government with Dorian that barely lasted two days. 
This problem of instability isn't going anywhere. As we'll see, it's going to keep rearing its head at the most inopportune times. The summer of 1858 was a, a dramatic case of instability, but it's not the only one. In the Canadas, at least, the need to solve this problem, to find a better, more legitimate, and more stable form of government, was a pressing need across the political landscape. So, as we move towards the 1860s and what will become a push for a confederation of the British North American colonies, this desire for a more stable system in the Canadas will matter. Okay, so that's general point number one. Second, and quite related to the first point, Canadian politics had become a quagmire of sectional grievances, religious tensions, and ethnic rivalries. This was nothing new. The rebellions in the 1830s, especially in Lower Canada, had partly been sparked by these tensions. Certainly the rebellion's losses bill riots of 1849 had demonstrated religious and ethnic tensions. Yet, what was clear by the late 1850s was that these tensions had not dissipated over time. The British had forced a union of the Canadas in 1841 in order to eradicate these tensions. The goal was the assimilation of French Canada. Yet the new system did not work at all according to its original plan. Almost from the start, different actors on the ground realized that assimilation was unworkable. French Canadians absolutely refused the idea, of course, but also the early governors found that in order to govern with any semblance of legitimacy, they needed to win over supporters from the large French bloc in the assembly. And the road to political success, initially pursued by the reformers, but then later taken up by the liberal conservative Macdonald-Cartier coalition, lay in building a coalition of French and English, Catholic and Protestant, to say nothing of even smaller regional rivalries like between Quebec City and Montreal. Far from banishing the French to political oblivion, the Union of the Canadas made their support and their voices fundamental to the working of the whole system. The trick was that although the system worked best for those who built coalitions and smoothed tensions, ethnic and especially religious tensions proliferated in many areas of British North American society. As we've seen, rivalries and anger flared up frequently at things like fights and murders at county fairs, at religious and national celebrations like on St. Patrick's Day, or just in the competition for political spoils. The successful politician, or rather series of politicians in coalition, needed to constantly keep these rivalries in mind. In 1857, the Governor General Head wrote to his superiors back in London explaining the local context. The Governor had realized that what it made someone like a, a Johnny MacDonald or a George Brown so effective was their ability to work through these divisions. As he put it, quote, whatever may be the personal convictions and whatever may be the religious beliefs of a Canadian politician, if he means to lead his countrymen as a whole, he must school his mind to the principles of tolerance and he must learn to respect the feelings and even the prejudices of others who differ widely from himself. So, for now, in the late 1850s, Georges-Étienne Cartier and Macdonald had managed to find this path through to another government. As we move ahead to Confederation, we should be clear that it was only ever going to happen if it seemed the right way to deal with these religious and ethnic tensions. Okay, so that's two points, instability and divisiveness, or at least the need to soothe divisive uh, tensions at any rate.
General point three is of a different character, but is also fundamental in directing the interests of politics in the 1850s, and it's this. Economic progress and development, especially as tied to railways and land. All politics in the 1850s were railway politics, some said, and while this wasn't quite true, it, it almost was. Railway companies built over 2,000 miles of railway lines by the end of the 1850s. Entrepreneurs created rival networks of hastily conceived lines, tying together the Canadas and linking them to the United States and accessing the ocean. Railways in the 1850s were like the, the internet in the 1990s. At the start of the decade, they were an interesting idea used by a few, and yet within 10 years, they had become central to the entire economy. As I mentioned before, the leading politicians of the day were some of the biggest promoters, whether as lawyers of the company, as with Cartier, as investors, or even as directors of the companies. The politicians of this era sought to benefit from growth, both for the whole society and sometimes personally. The trick was that the rail lines had expanded quickly, so quickly in the 1850s, and they did so before the traffic on those lines could fully compensate them for that growth. They grew on the expectation and, and hope that they could capture traffic from the American West rooting it through Canadian hands. This was the great hope of the Grand Trunk Line and its many British investors. All of this seemed promising, and, and it was, but it also led to vast amounts of corporate debt. And not just corporate debt. Remember, too, that railway debt was also partly government debt. In their rush to foster rail growth, Canadian governments had generously guaranteed the investments and loans offered to railway companies. Hello there, Francis Hinks. We're thinking of you. So if Canadian railways failed, so too did the Canadian government's finances. So in a very real way, what was good for railways was good for Canada, and vice versa, what was bad for rail could financially ruin the Canadas. As always, though, growth offered a way out. Perhaps, just maybe, some thought, what British North America needed was more railways and a larger market, railways linking up all of the colonies of British North America, an intercolonial railway. The idea was not a new one, but it started to gain a lot of supporters in the late 1850s. And maybe, just maybe, the process of joining the colonies by rail could be matched by a political joining of the colonies too. This is what Alexander Galt proposed. Remember that Cartier and Macdonald brought Galt into the government precisely because of his idea for British North American Union. But it wasn't just that. Galt had also been a railway man, and his ideas for political union were directly tied to his railway schemes, including building an intercolonial railway, joining up the province of Canada with the colonies of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, taking traffic from far west in Sarnia right to the ocean port in Halifax. Galt also envisioned spreading Canada westward and absorbing the lands to which the Hudson's Bay Company claimed title, all through what is now Western Canada and partly the Western United States, perhaps even extending Canada to include the British possessions on the West Coast. Galt didn't know it at the time, but in the year he made his proposals, the fate of the British colony on the Pacific was about to be changed utterly with the discovery of gold. This led to the fateful Fraser River Gold Rush of 1858. 
By the end of the year, even as the Canadian government was sending delegates to London to ask about political union of the colonies, the local governor on Vancouver Island had been forced to take the extraordinary measures in order to deal with the thousands of American treasure hunters who had shown up to hunt for gold. We are going to deal with all of these Western issues in more detail next season. But for now, I'll just say that Galt and other railway men, especially George Brown and his Western Canadian reformers, hoped for this Western expansion. This was one area where party alliances often broke down, with reformers and conservatives often supporting expansion with equal vigor. The one uncertain part of this expansionist ethos was the opinion of French Canadians. Would someone like Cartier go with his railway interests and support Western expansion? Or would he see Western expansion as a threat to his ethnic and religious identity, as just an opportunity for English Protestants to overwhelm and assimilate les Canadiens? This is where we are in late 1858. Cartier and MacDonald are back in power, and these three overriding developments are in the background. The surging power of railway interests and politics, and the push for expansion on the one hand, the ethnic and religious divisiveness that underpinned Canadian politics on the other, and, assuming in this bizarre analogy that we have three hands, the perennial threat of instability on yet another alien hand. Let's get back to events, though. For in the autumn of 1858, poor Alexander Galt learned that nothing comes quickly in Canadian politics. That fall, he boarded his ship along with Cartier and sailed for London. The Canadians had a sales job, and their customer was the British government. Representatives from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia also sailed to London. They wanted an intercolonial railway, too, and hoped for British investment to make it happen. Unfortunately for Galt and the Maritimers, the British were not yet interested in what he had to sell. To the question of a political union of all the British colonies, the British essentially thought that there was not yet enough support for the initiative. It seemed like a party measure, a proposal from a a single government meant to meet the needs of that government, and they had no interest in getting involved in Canadian party politics. They let the Canadians down by somewhat leaving the door ajar, saying that they would need to consult with the Canadians' maritime colleagues, though they were fairly certain that the response would be no. The British were just then more interested, actually, in a union of the maritime colonies, except Newfoundland, and likely wanted that union to precede any wider union. They also were much more supportive of a a legislative union and not a confederation. That is, the creation of a single country with only one main government and not what the Canadians proposed, a confederation. And if you think we're done talking about legislative unions versus confederations, you are absolutely wrong. But at this point, the British preference was for a legislative union, exactly as existed in the United Kingdom itself. Sadly, too, the Canadians and the Maritimers' railway hopes were dashed. The colonists wanted British financial support, guaranteed loans and investment. But late 1858 was not a good time to start asking for money in London resources were stretched. The British had only recently emerged from the vast expense that was war in the Crimea. And then there was India. 1858 was the year of the Indian mutiny, the rebellion of Indian soldiers angered at injustices in that colony. It was set off by rumors that the powder cartridges 
that they had to bite open in order to load their weapons were sealed with animal fat, either pork or beef, depending on the story what was told, an offense to both Muslims and Hindus. Soldiers rebelled in several areas, setting off wider attacks on British civilians and leading to a, a harsh retribution on the part of the British. In fact, our good old friend Lord Elgin was eventually sent to deal with the crisis. So, with this to worry about, the, the somewhat weak British government mostly just wished that the British North Americans could manage to be self-supporting and fund their railway ventures on their own, thank you very much. Back in the Canadas, the Cartier-McDonald government could at least say, well, they tried. They weren't going to give up on the idea of an intercolonial railway, but for the moment, you could cynically say that the idea of a British-American Union had served its purpose. It had brought Galt into the government, and it had allowed the mess of the double shuffle to be smoothed over with the suggestion that this, this new government was somehow different and had a different purpose. But as the Canadians moved into 1859, they were left pretty much as we saw them before, still facing instability, divisiveness, and the expansionary desires of railway interests. If the official rebuke of colonial union had seemed harsh, the British did have one gift to give their North American subjects, and it came in the form of the 18-year-old son of Queen Victoria, Albert Edward, the Prince of Wales. The initial idea had come from a Toronto reform politician who hoped to have Queen Victoria herself make the first visit of any monarch to a British colony. The idea caught on. The, the government discussed the matter and thought it would be a grand idea. Governor Head soon dispatched a letter inviting Her Majesty to visit her North American colonies. Now, they knew that this invitation probably wouldn't be accepted, but they had a good reason to think that Her Majesty would send her son instead, and she did. So it was in the summer of 1860 that the Prince of Wales set sail for British North America along with a, a whole slew of retainers, including one very important advisor who was soon to, soon to stir up a lot of trouble, the Duke of Newcastle. Newcastle served in the British cabinet as colonial secretary and he treated the trip as a field of political landmines through which to tread with the utmost care. All along the route, at each stop, each town outdid itself to welcome the prince. Local officials dressed their best, they decorated the towns and shooed away the vagrants and, most of all, erected elaborate triumphal arches. This was the great activity of, of mid-19th century pageantry. These were like standing floats through which processions would pass under as the prince and his retinue passed through the town. Festooned with flowers and banners and other images, they were meant to showcase the town and, and the groups within the town to the prince. But remember, when we're talking about local groups, some of the most important social organizations were religious and factional. The largest group of all was the Loyal Orange Order. That it was loyal, exceedingly so, couldn't be doubted. But this also presented a huge problem to the prince, or at least the, to the Duke of Newcastle, uh, who certainly thought it was a problem. Back in Britain, the Orange Lodge was associated with bigotry and sectional violence and troubles in Ireland. Even as the prince traveled through North America, the British government was debating a bill meant to suppress flying banners and images displaying orange emblems. 
So what was the prince to do when he arrived in North American cities to find himself welcomed by crowds of exuberant Orange Order loyalists decked out in their regalia who had erected elaborate triumphal arches marked with all of the expected Orange symbols, expecting the prince to travel under these arches to the cheers of onlookers? This is what kept the Duke of Newcastle up at night. The problem began almost as soon as the prince's steamer, named the Kingston, sailed into Upper Canadian waters. The next stop was the city of Kingston. The former capital, home to Johnny MacDonald, who was on board with the prince and Newcastle and the governor general. But as they traveled upriver, contacts in Kingston let them know that the Orange Lodge there had planned a huge welcome for the prince. Attempts to get the lodge to just tone down their greeting and get out of their orange festooned clothing, although well, they didn't work. And so the prince's ship arrived in the harbor, only to see the wharf filled with a loyal and very eager orange crowd. What were they to do? Well, to the Duke of Newcastle, it was obvious. Nothing. The ship stayed in the harbor, and the prince didn't land. Meanwhile, officials scurried back and forth to try to rectify the situation. Members of the Orange Lodge couldn't see the problem. Weren't they the most loyal of subjects? All they wanted was the chance to show their enthusiasm for the future king. And hadn't the prince been greeted by Catholics in Lower Canada with all their crosses and similar regalia? In Canada, these issues of division were all about balance, about providing equal measures of recognition to the different groups. John and MacDonald tried, without success, to convince Newcastle on this issue. But Newcastle was primarily thinking about how this would play out back at home, and he would not relent. The next morning, when Orangemen again gathered on the pier, they discovered that they weren't going to get their chance. The prince's ship raised anchor and set sail up the lake to the next stop. Only, this did not stop the rather eager Orangemen. At least 150 Orangemen simply headed to the train station and followed along by land. So when the prince's ship arrived in Belleville, further up the, the, the lake, they found that they were once again greeted with determined Orangemen who had traveled round the town, stirring up difficulty and telling the story of what they had just endured downriver. The Duke of Newcastle wasn't to be outdone, though. Once they heard about the situation in Belleville, Newcastle ordered the prince's ship to head further up the lake. Off they went again, this time to Coburg. So, of course, the Orangemen themselves hopped on a train and followed. This could have gone on all the way up to Toronto, except it seems that John A. Macdonald intervened. Somehow, just purely by accident, of course, the train carrying the Orangemen had a rather convenient accident in a remote location. Nothing serious, mind you just enough to prevent the train from going any further that day. So when the prince arrived in Coburg, he was greeted uh, not by Kingston Orangemen. Instead, much to the delight of local residents and the, the visit there went off without a hitch. The local Orangemen greeting the prince this time in their regular clothes and without the regalia. That, though, wasn't the end of it. The next stop was the sometime capital of the Canada's Toronto, or as some called it, the Belfast of the Canadas. With more than 20 individual orange lodges bursting with members, the city and its orange adherents were raring to greet their monarch. 
They had constructed an elaborate arch, richly decorated with flowers, orange ribbon, and images of, of William of Orange, the English king and hero who had saved Protestantism in Britain and put down the Catholic revolt in Ireland. Toronto was also, though, home to many Catholics, and they had gathered in huge public meetings to demand that something be done. It would be an insult, they said, to any Catholic walking in the procession along with the prince to have to walk under this degrading arch. Delegations went back and forth to the mayor and other government officials, each side absolutely certain of their own righteousness. Finally, the Orange Order agreed to remove many of the more, more offensive materials from the arch and it was allowed to stay up. The only problem was that when the prince landed and made his way along with the Duke of Newcastle through the city, the Duke noticed an image of King William on the arch. He was absolutely furious. He upbraided the mayor for his, his wholly insulting action. Hadn't he promised that there was to be no orange symbolism? The mayor was forced to prostrate himself before Newcastle, explaining that he, he hadn't known about the image and explained that the members of the lodge thought it would be fine, given that, of course, it was merely an image of an English king. What could be more loyal in honoring a future king himself as he came through the city? It didn't end there. When the prince went north on a train into what's now cottage country, local orange lodges erected arches over the railway tracks. Newcastle was forced to ignore these or abandon the entire trip. But by now you get the point. The whole issue of religious division mattered profoundly in 1860. We might today think of these divisions as nothing more than window dressing, hardly worth fussing over. This was not the case in 1860. Canadians on all sides had their denominations and their fraternal lodges, and it mattered that these took social precedence, especially at the most important of events, the first visit of a future monarch to this part of the British Empire. The brouhaha of the imperial visit went on even after the prince left. Thousands of Canadians sent a petition to England protesting at the insulting actions of the Duke of Newcastle. Meanwhile, the government of the day attempted to bridge these divisions. Johnny MacDonald was a long-standing member of the Orange Lodge, and he, he governed alongside a majority of Catholic legislatures, legislators headed by Georges Etienne Cartier. This is where things stood in 1860. A colony rife with potential conflict, a political system teetering on instability held together by coalitions led by politicians schooled in the art of toleration and compromise. But the growing anger of many upper Canadians who felt abused under the sectional equality of the current constitutional system lay like a giant trap, barely covered over with branches, ready for any unwary politician to fall in to his doom. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. If you like what you've heard so far, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends. Tell them in any uh, way you, you normally would on any kind of social media or even in an old-fashioned way in person. So far, we've been focused very much on the Canadas. Next week, we'll see that if we really want to understand what takes this situation from an, an uneasy truce and tilts it in the direction of change, we need to actually look abroad, to Britain, 
and also to that country, which is always important in Canadian affairs, but which we haven't touched on too much so far, the United States. When sectional upheaval and the fight over slavery led the Americans into a civil war, as happened the next year in 1861, the Canadians discovered that the turmoil would come for them too. The origins of Canadian Confederation lie very much in the politics of the Canadas, of course, but Canada's origins also emerged as a reaction to the tumult of American violence. 1867 and all that is graded by me, Christopher Dummett. This year, it's also funded by you, the listeners, for $5 a month. You can become an 1867 and all that patron, a real-life supporter of history in action. You can find all the details and a link to our Patreon page in this episode's show's notes. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.